Welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on drummer and sound artist Simon Burrs. The impetus for our conversation was the release of Simon's collaboration with American bassist and sonic wizard Bill Laswell and the Japanese avant-garde trumpeter Toshinori Kondo. While Kondo passed away in October of 2020, this work, Breath vs. Beats, was not released until August 2023. Simon is a prolific artist across multiple forms and media. His perspective on creativity, process, collaboration, and sound resulted in a discussion that has stuck with me in the weeks since we recorded. Fasten your seatbelts, assume a comfortable position, and get ready for a fun ride with Simon Burrs. Thank you so much for making time to do this. I'm very excited to speak with you. It's a pleasure. It's quite emotionally for me with this release uh, with Kondo Toshinori, which is not anymore here. And to do this in this cave in Switzerland, in a, a wonderful landscape, but it was good too. And I'm super exhausted right now because I organizing three or three festivals. I had the single exhibition last week. And the release and uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the life of a modern artist. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, And self-made, a lot of self-made uh, stuff. And I appreciate that very much, especially with these recordings and that it's getting more international because the, it's very difficult in my environment, which my school is and stuff, to, to explain what I'm doing uh, with my music. And I'm super excited that you give attention to this and I'm very happy. Thank you. There's a lot I'm hoping to discuss with you, but maybe we can start with Breath versus Beats uh-huh. since that's so timely. When you first created the tracks for this work, what is your approach? Do you improvise? Are these composed percussion pieces? It's very difficult as a listener to understand if these are compositions or improvisations that you later edit, mm-hmm. etc. There is a very nice expression of James Singleton from New Orleans, which is also in the film of Liquid Land, which I did 11 years ago. And in this documentation film, we are talking about improvised music. He has a statement in this film, which he explains the... Improvised music scene in New Orleans, which I joined right now since 14 years. And he said in this film, what you can learn is that improvised music should sound like composed music. And composed music should sound like improvised music. And I think this statement uh, hits me a lot because if I improvise, I try to not just play around. So I try to tell a story. and. My whole topic, finally, if I improvise, it's all time playing in the moment as good as I can, not thinking, but uh, an internalized idea of of songwriting to play. And this was the thing. I was 2017 in uh, New Orleans and in the Marini Studios, I rented the, the studio for myself. And the plan was to record a solo record, which I just play absolutely freely, a solo record, the rocking desk. That's my, the title. So I went to the studio and I didn't have any ideas that I want to do that or what this, I just played my ass off in this way. I let it go. There were no MIDI stuff, it's completely analog electronics live played out of the moment. And so I had about one half hour, good stuff, which I thought, yeah, I can work with that. Then it's a very difficult thing to uh, say, okay, that's it right now. And then uh, Kondo Toshinori, I, I played with him on a festival and 
I, I did sound check with my rocking desk and he came direct from the airport from Tokyo to Zurich and he was standing on stage and tipped me on the shoulder and I saw this guy the first time in my life at the first word, Kondo told me, recording, recording. So uh, that was the moment which I was very blessed and surprised that the first word of Kondo was recording. So we went with Nils-Peter Molwer and Superterz, this band, on Japan tour. And after this tour, we had some uh, duo shows also. And then we went to Tokyo to his studio and I showed him this solo recording. He was really into it and he said, yeah, let's work with that. That's cool. Uh, he plays over. And then he improvised two tracks, sometimes one, over my improvisations. It was very funny <laughs> because the recordings were not quite properly edited. I played one song and then the, the sound guy, he just let it go. I want to create a new atmosphere for a new song. Uh, I work just with analog stuff. So if I want to manipulate, an example, the bass drum, which goes through effects and whatever, you know, so I have just to pump the bass drum and just to trigger the bass drum and to make new sounds. And it makes crazy stuff. It's absolutely not in rhythm because I just try, you know, a hammer and to, oh, now bing, 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 boom, boom, boom. Oh, that's cool. But Kondo used this stuff also to play over. And I was really shocked. I said, no, it's not, it's impossible. And then the funny thing was with Bill Lesle that both of them, they used this track also and they played over it. I said, no, that's cool. And for me, it was yeah, a healing situation somehow that it has to be with the mindset of Kondo and Bill. I realized they are really in this express yourself and the sound of you is interesting. And in the end, we did just the edit. Thing. We made five pieces, the emptiness, the fire, the water, the, the air, and the earth. And that's it. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear you relate that piece about Kondo playing over essentially your prep work or your tuning or your non-intentional music. Because something I wanted to talk to you about was my perception of you is that just from listening to your various projects, my perception is that you must hear music everywhere. I was listening to the Stone Slab recordings and... Oh, okay, okay cool. First of all, I, I should say I'm very partial to... I love landscape, soundscape, mm. ambient music. So it's, it's, it wasn't a stretch for me to okay. enjoy sure. this. But, but yeah, it left me thinking that it must be interesting to be inside your ears to hear everything <laughs> as potential music and so to hear that you were a bit surprised by Kondo and Bill's approach <laughs> it seems that they were just turning it on you <laughs> yeah there, there are a lot of doubts finally it leads me also to create my own music school in this way that the curriculum of the music school is sound as you are and we start from that even if it's wrong it's true. It's very influenced by Joe Cage. Like the birds, I love this book, For the Birds, from Joe Cage. So in improvised music, you start from even the error, from the, the, the disaster, and then you work. So it goes also very spiritually with an example in the philosophy that you take the, the pain or... Krishnamurti talks about that, that you take the pain as the raw diamond and the pain and the suffering, this is what you have to keep in your, this is the essence finally, which you have to work on. So you make this raw diamond to a brilliant jewelry. I think this is a wonderful metaphor to how I work finally. And I think my deepest inspiration is perhaps I was a seven, eight years old kid and had to make homework and had to color the sky in blue or the green grass. Very stupid thing. And I had my pencils had start to, to play on my lamp on the, on the desk because they are strings and they sounded so nice and I can move the, 
the strings and they get higher, higher and lower. And at this moment, I think there happened something to me because my brother is six years older than me. I was six, seven and start to listen to Deep Purple, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin. Normally, I just listen through my parents to perhaps jazz, standard jazz and classical music. And then I hear Jimi Hendrix if these feedbacks or hot butter came in the radio and I was freaking out. I said, but that's, that's something different. And since then, I think I was all time perhaps listening and freaking out with then also with electronics because there were to me a ghost inside, which makes my music perhaps also today very cinematic. And I work with my microphones on the drums. In example, I have contact microphones on the cymbal. And James Singleton also told that also once uh, told me, Simon, you make the people sounding better. And it was a very big gift from him to me that I start to understand what I'm doing. Because as a drummer, you are the heart of the band who keeps the stuff together. And if you work with an open microphone, it's like the, the singer holds the microphone to the audience or whatever. So you include the, the soundscape in your sound. And then I have the whole electronic weapons, which I can work with delays, with distortion, with reverbs, with harmonizers to add to the existing improvising something cinematic or yeah. electronics. I realize this is quite hard to play in different improvised music scenes, especially I, I work in Berlin and if I go there with my electronics, I'm some kind of suspect because you don't improvise a snare drum just with that. So I extend my drumming through analog electronics. And to me, it's just fun. And it's just how I want to make this cinematic thing somehow. You were present in Japan recording the trumpet parts. Were you present with Bill, or did he do that remotely? Uh, Kondo did it uh, by himself. Oh, wow. And then he showed me, uh, we went to his studio, and he, he did already recording. We just decided together which part is really cool, and we did some editing. But finally, I would say there's 90% of the whole recording is made by myself, then Kondo by himself, and then also Bill Lesel did it by himself. And... In this way, I was very impressed how fast and how accurate it sounds. I, I talked right now to already many people and say, wow, it sounds like you did it together, you know. And it's very organic sounding, yeah. Yeah, and this is the, yeah, for sure. They are highly professional musicians. I think it's also a very interesting thing what I learned also for my future to realize if I have connection example right now in Indonesia with Gamelan players or with musicians I play since 14 years in New Orleans to say, we have to be together if we have an idea, if you have a concept. And for sure, it's much more fun to stay together in a studio and develop this together. But the pandemic time showed us really that it's also possible to work digitally also in the in the music. Yeah, it's exciting. And I, I think that the mistake some some people make is to think of it as a binary either or exactly proposition, whereas it's just another set of tools and techniques and opportunities. Um, it gives you the whole globe as your palate, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> exactly. to where you can get within a day's flight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
One of my favorite credits on the album is Everyday Objects. And I wonder, <laughs> I would love to know some of those objects, but if you prefer to keep it a mystery, that's fine. No, no. <laughs> Again, it goes to this idea of, of finding musicality all around you. And it takes me back to that story about you and the lamp. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit, about the, the notion that every object might unleash a sonic territory for you? I can make some examples. An example, the stones, you're talking about the stones, which are also right now released, the drop. I was in holidays 14 years ago in the French Alps, South Alps, on 2,000 meters with my mountain bike and driving home. And then I realized suddenly there were stone fields under my bicycle. It sounds like Steve Reich. So so I stopped and I was super fascinated about these 220 million years old slide stones. And I picked up 30 kilos in my backpack and took it to Switzerland and started to experiment. And I made this sound installation, which is dropped now. I think this is the, the thing to be alert every moment how it sounds. And there are suddenly certain techniques, which I found an object that you have three fingers and you put it on that it's not really dumped and you try to play on it. And then suddenly it makes crazy sounds and then it happens. I think one big inspiration was Nick Collins from Chicago. He wrote this wonderful book, DIY Electronics. It's a Bible of self-made electronics. And he showed me so simple stuff like a loudspeaker works with a nine volt battery and two paper clamps. I just played in this workshop one, one day just with this paper works and, and paper clamps at the loudspeaker and made feedbacks and realized, wow, electronic is so haptically. It's, it's very interesting, you know, and then suddenly with this loudspeaker, I put a lot of trash inside and start to play and had, had a little drum set on my desk and that. That leads me to all different materials. Then with piezo microphones, with single coils, you can dig in the material like a microscope. And mm. then it's going to be really interesting. And this leads me then also later to start workshops with children and also adults and musicians to learn to amplify uh, his own instrument, perhaps, but also the body, the voice, um, different material and especially trash. This leads then to the environment disaster we have that through listening to, in example, an empty trash can, a, a can, you can make thousands of sounds with a piezo microphone on it. And you, ca you can use it as a drum tool or you can make sounds with that. So I just teach this also to uplift or upgrade the trash material to uh, great instruments in this way. I did this project 10 times 10 to 11 uh, in Berlin, in the Walton Gallery, which we were invited by a gallerist with Kaspar König. It's a sound artist too. And he told us, make an exhibition here. And we told him, ah, it's difficult because my instruments I used for my shows. I cannot put them in a museum or a gallery. But we had the idea to say, let's us be the exhibition, just the presence of two sound artists in the gallery. And we start from the first day on to build instruments out of the environmental trash. And we made a call in Berlin, bring us your stuff you don't use anymore, but you think can be something sounding good. It was so funny what the people brought us and we start to build up in the gallery, making crazy stuff. In the evening, suddenly we start to play these new innovations and they showed up composers, crazy improvisers, getting really interesting. That leads us to do this project also in Gabriel Voltaire in Zurich. And then it was very interesting to analyze the trash from people in Zurich. In example, they were next door a pharmacy we went there and asked them, do you have trash? We, we would like to build instruments out of it. And they said, no, we recycled everything yesterday. Okay, then Switzerland is very high in recycling and stuff. And the next day, the one employer came to us and, and 
brought us a new scanner for 500 euros. And she told us, yeah, we found this. We cannot use, we have another system. We don't know what to do with it. Use it. It was a brand new in the package, <laughs> 500 euros. And so we start to hack this new model. And it was very funny because I can make music with uh, barcodes. So we went to the grocery store and waited, in example, potatoes, two grams potatoes, five grams potatoes, five kilos potatoes. It makes all time a new barcode. And we put that on a, a, a notation score. And I had the possibility to play five grams of potatoes, three kilos of potatoes and stuff like that. And it worked. That thought, wow, that would be very cool to have a, a symphony orchestra playing just vegetables. But the, the problem is if you make DIY circuit bending stuff, it's all time a risk. And during a show, it's died and then it's gone. And this is also something which I think it's very interesting that it's not sure, you know, it's not safe. And in our world, which is every, everything should be safe. Nothing is safe, but <laughs> uh, this is a very nice experience. And then I did also the project in uh, New Orleans, the same thing. And then we made this film Liquid Land out of it because we want to give a, a focus on this disaster of global warming, trash and social behaving. And this was incredible deep. Yeah, this experience was very deep to see these people working together, playing music together, and also to see the, the impact of music, the social impact of music. Do you see regional variations in the trash that you get for source material? Extremely. Right now I have my single exhibition, which I show my works, uh, some of them, and I have there the deer. The deer is, is um, a telephone wooden st uh, stand, and I found an old rotten sofa on the streets uh, in New Orleans. And we took the springs out oh, and I fixed yeah. the springs on it. And then I paid uh, a microphone to strings and it's very magic what's comes out. In example, in Berlin, uh, somebody brought us <laughs> these uh, candles, these electronic candles you have on the restaurants on the top and they blinky blinky and they have a battery inside. And somebody brought that and I thought, yeah, come on. That's very difficult to make sound out of it. But my friend, Kaspar, he had the idea just to take out the lamp. In the lamp, there are for sure two channels. And we just put two microphone channels in this lamp. And you cannot imagine there were Chinese children in uh, children's song came out. So very cheap Chinese stuff in Berlin, then the rotten beds in New Orleans and high-end scanners new as trash in Zurich. It means a lot, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a video of a sound artist. I'm going to get the technical word wrong, but they were essentially probes and inserted them into different fruits and vegetables and had them connected to inputs into a computer. And I guess the sugars or the alkalines in the fruits and vegetables generated different tones. Yeah. And they were beautiful yeah. as source <laughs> sounds. They were absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I was right now in the very nice sound art exhibition in the Swiss Alps in Appenzell, which was Carlos, I forgot his full name. He's a biologist and he works with lasers. They can detect the nanometers vibrations. And he used them in the fields and they put them on the leaves where insects are. And he recording the sex calls from the insects and makes them hearable with octavise or whatever, because they are high frequency or low frequency. And it was mind blowing. I was sitting in this rotten little house in the middle of the fields and he had subwoofers. And you hear these Tinder sounds of the insects, finally. <laughs> and it's like a composition. And they are the... So really, it's like improvised music. And this is the, the sex calls of insects. And right now, I think worldwide in this 
sound experimental sound art worlds through the new computing and stuff like that the technique gets more more better we start to understand how the nature works and for me i'm more right now not in the living in the biological world i'm more in the geological world which is also living but it's much more difficult to dig in there a sound but it's also possible there is another friend of mine in switzerland he listen to mountains with high-end microscope as a sound microscope somehow and he can really listen to the to the mountains they are sounds also if you have the right device to me i i don't want to dig in so deep in in digital hardware stuff uh, to detect this sound you need all time somebody who listens to it the sound to me i think it's in the world, but nobody's there, nobody can talk about. So for me, it means if I do sound art, I show that I am there and I hear it like that. It's like a composer, like Bach, he wrote his songs. And I say, I write my songs in this way in the French Alps, if I found the stones and I improvise there. That's just my way to do it. the difference such that it exists between a sound artist and a musician? <laughs> Honestly, to me, it's just branding and give the people uh, an idea. I studied transdisciplinarity fine arts. Uh, and okay. since then, I'm completely lost. Because to explain somebody what is means transdisciplinary is already very difficult. And I think that's exactly the thing. I would say I work... As a, a drummer, that's my thing. Then for sure with electronics and sounds, but then also on spaces, mountains, caves, whatever. And then the very important thing is the social environment. That finally, since 14 years, New Orleans, it, it's clear. You are all time in the social feedback in the city. I think this is also leads me back to the, this uh, transdisciplinary approach. We have to create something new together and we don't know where we go finally. And Haraway staying with the trouble, I think it's also a very nice way to explain perhaps also my thinking that, yeah, we stay in the problem. It's a very difficult situation for humankind and we have to deal with that. And this leads me to say, yeah. It's fucked up, but what I'm doing now? This is the general question all the time. Also, if I see the, the art world, just to ask myself, is there hope in, in art, you know? Or I just use this disaster to make more smoke. The, the ice is melting and, and you make an ice block melting like Olufsen did in the French main place. And for sure, it's very intense and the people start to think about, but I try to point on the problem, but then also to make something wonderful out of it or something scary. Otherwise, I wouldn't work, in example, with children's and with my school, because this is the future and we have to give them trust and hope and the way to express themselves. It speaks to, I think, a little bit of 
intention, but it also speaks to if the the art as it relates to environmental catastrophe mm. can raise awareness, it can maybe suggest paths or raise consciousness so people maybe take action or choose to learn more. But there's also another side of it that you sort of briefly alluded to, which is there's a nihilistic potentiality where if you're just using the catastrophe as source material, I don't, you know, and I can't point to examples of that. It's more theoretical, but it's possible. If the artist feels no sense of humanity or obligation. Nah. We live in a very capitalist world and it's very easy. If I see Hollywood, in example, it's very easy to frightening people. And it's also sound wise, very easy. You know, I, I use a metal bank and I have a contact microlet and I have a subwoofer and I have an octavizer and I make boom. And it makes like in the T-Rex is coming in the Jurassic world, you know, this is the easiest way. It's very nice with children. So maybe play T-Rex and you know, I can make an example with just this music, which I see in these blockbusters. It's so overloaded, mostly no, no silence, which I think it's very frightening if it's getting really silent, but it's too much of boom. And all the time, I think. I make a lot of boom and I like it, but I think in between you have, you need a dynamic and it's easy to frightening people and it makes a lot of attention. And if, uh, if we see right now in except the media also, you don't talk about good things. You're talking about disasters because the people think, oh, that's and so it's to explain and to make hope. It's much more difficult than to irritate people and frightening people. Yeah. And do you feel a sense of responsibility to make hope? Perhaps it's by Catholic education, <laughs> but, <laughs> which what I hate. But um, well, well, let me let me interrupt before I let you answer. <laughs> I ask you that question both: Do you feel that responsibility in multiple ways, as an artist, as a citizen, as a Catholic? <laughs> you know, uh, ex-Catholic, ex-Catholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, no, I I come from. I study handicap pedagogy first before I can. I study in New York, the drums and stuff like that. So it's, it was a long path. I start to play drums very early, but it's not like in America, which have much more possibilities really to digging early to show the people, oh, I want to be a professional drummer. It leads me until 28, finally. I study with Shosho Meyer in New York, made the drums collective and stuff like that. But that leads me then in the end to be a drummer. But I was also very happy that I had this psychological knowing and this pedagogic didactic knowing. Perhaps right now, if I think about it, leads me also to that, that to tell a story. Also to work with children. So you see these eyes of a five-year-old boy or girl sitting the first time on a drum. And you say to them, let's be birds. And we fly around the drums. And it's just beautiful the, how the kid is playing the first time this instrument's completely free. And it takes me five minutes and suddenly we are elephants and we play elephants and we have already quarter notes. And then we have the chumbo, we have the backbeat, the chumbo, chumbo and stuff like that. And then you have the papagai the, and these animals. And, and we play just these animals and that that's leads me to hope in this way. Then just to see if you are free as a kid or as a humankind anyway, the creativity what we have leads us to new ideas and leads us hopefully also to learn to live together peacefully on this world. In this way, I'm absolutely enthusiastic still. Yeah. I believe in humankind in this way. Yes. That's beautiful. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you like what you've heard so far, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. And now, back to Spotlight On. 
it doesn't surprise me both as a drummer and as someone interested in environmental concerns that you would end up in and have a connection to New Orleans, where it seems like <laughs> a lot of these threads come together. But could you tell me the story of Simon and New Orleans? It's not immediately obvious how you would end up there. Yeah, it was for me also uh, crazy because New Orleans, we have a, in, in Ascona Jazz Festival, uh, which is just jazz, traditional and old people go there and listen to this jazz. And so I had all time this very branded image, New Orleans is jazz, and it's boring. But I played also in a wedding band once, which we played New Armstrong stuff and Trechez also. And this was very funny because the people loved it. And then I end up on a tour with a duo, highly experimental. I just had a table full of children instruments and effects and all circuit bending. It was just really noisy like hell. And the bass player, Klaus Sjernik, he played the bass through Ableton Live. And so it was a big mess of noise. Andy Durta, he's an extremely good connect organizer with scattered jazz in New Orleans. He booked us three times in a week in New Orleans on the tour. We enter up there. We had the first show in the Hi-Ho Lounge. And it never happened to me that I played with Aurora Nealand and Helen Chile the first time with two crazy, extremely good musicians. And we had a lot of fun. And <laughs> There were people were screaming in this improvised music. Go, 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 go. And that never happened to me. You know, if you come from Europe, if you play this music, they drink a glass of wine and after the show, they come to you and say, yeah, it was very special. And do you know, okay, <laughs> they do like, it's too far for them. But in New Orleans, I found some kind of a second ha uh, hometown or a second birthplace that I realized this place leads me to that what I am, and I'm okay. So the curriculum of the school, of Bada Boom of my school, is, is really deeply influenced by the energy of New Orleans. First of all, the beats, and the, it's a birth of jazz. You can explain, finally, the whole music history through this city. It's also very interesting to explain the danger what it means to live in danger of the ocean, of the Lake Pontchartrain, of the Mississippi, of the violence and all this, of the suffering of the slaves, the whole very bad story of the slavery and also of the natives. It's so a rich content of history, of music. It's fantastic. How much time do you spend there? Before pandemic, I went mostly once or twice for three months there just to explore, uh, to produce uh, music, films, which we did, then also exhibitions I made. Right now, the last two times, I sh start to show also my fine arts, which is also very interesting. I think it's after many years, I suddenly I realized I do also inspiring New Orleans scene. I thought all time it's inverse, but obviously it starts really to feedbacking in a very nice way. Daily, I miss New Orleans. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? That's really a thing.
Tell me a bit about your solo exhibitions. First of all, what mediums or media do they span? And when it's specifically in the sound art realm, is it like what you described earlier that it's always you in performance or is it ever like installation? A drop is there right now. It's also the release of drop right now. So that's an installation, a sound installation. So just running. What I realized, especially during the pandemic, that the main energy or the main meaning of, of my visual art is prints somehow because I put my chopsticks or drumsticks in ink and starts to play on paper. This is also the cover, by the way, Breath Vacious Beats. It's also made by myself and uh, Yota, the son of Kondo. So I start to think about what happens if you take an inspiration, an improvisation, composition, reading, printing, reading, recording all together. This was finally coming up to me during my studies at the art school in, in Zurich because I realized we have right now so many new music production tools, which you can, Fruity Loops, in example, you download a beat or sounds and you're able to create a proper song in five minutes, finally. If you are used to, you know, you can really make da-da-da-da-da and it's, it sounds like, woohoo. That leads me to the idea, okay, what happens if we think everything in the same time? So I amplify my drumsticks, I have certain kind of effects, modular stuff, and start to beat on paper and make music at the same time. And then I see it and I see that stakadang or the tiketakokr or stuff like that. And I can read it. So that was fun, but I thought the social interaction was missing. No, why I do not take that. And then I had the idea to play this piece on 100 meters paper on the paper roll and uh, a very highly professional dancer, Gabriel Oberkfell, he pulled my paper in the front of me. I watched him how he danced and I played the score to him. So I made the music and he was dancing with my score. Right now we have a score of 100 meters and the end of my exhibition, we do a festival, which I will pull out this 100 meters again on the street and the people can stand around and I have another musician and an improviser and another dancer. They interpret this score again. So this is one piece, but that's a performance. And an other drawing, a print is I made with Skulis Verison in Iceland, a record. It's called Shifted Eruption, which is a very deep drone. Again, I thought to produce this, it's cost me a lot of money and it was pandemic. And I start to improvise with this recording. I had an old bass amp with a loudspeaker and I just put a paper on the bass amp loudspeaker and had some ink and put an Icelandic stone on this paper. And then I start to play the record and the stone starts to jump through this vibration on the paper and it makes extremely beautiful eruptions of splits of ink. But I didn't accept that the stone is, during the vibration, the paper gets weak. And after 10 minutes, the stone was falling through <laughs> and the ink was going in the loudspeaker. So I said, oh, I shouldn't do that. But <laughs> after it was dry, it looks so beautiful because it looks like a falcon because the paper gets three-dimensional and it looks like a falcon who was exploded. So I made a, a series of five pictures, all time the same procedure, five times a stone and ink played through this. So this paper hangs in the exhibition. And another thing was that I, with this recording, with School is Very Soon, I thought, okay, let's do 10 records. And I went to a high professional recording studio, Central Dub in Bern, and I told them the idea, can you cut, direct cut 10 records? And they say, yeah, we can do, but it's 
it's, it costs a lot, you know. I said, fuck it, do it. So I had 10 single printed records. And the performance in the Alps, which I made an exhibition performance, 10 days. So the beginning at six o'clock in the evening, I just played in a cave, very dark with nice light. Again, the same thing, but not with ink. I did it with graphite. And so I had 10 graphite prints of this recording. And then I put them together. In the front is the print and in the back is uh, the record. And in Berlin, I worked with Malte. He's a highly professional guy. With his company, he frames pictures. They frame for Art Basel and everything. So it was quite funny to come there as a musician to say, hey, I, I want to have a, a cover, but it should be also a picture. He was very creative and he made a very nice, very expensive cover, which you see the artwork and you can turn it. And then behind is, is the record. And so it's a three-dimensional art piece somehow. And the cool thing is that you and don't release it digital. So this record is really just on the vinyl. I sell it right now as an art piece. And it's the analog NFT for me somehow. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that you've mentioned multiple times that I wanted to ask you about, which is what is behind your affinity or preference for analog? I feel it. I think if you, I work a lot with loudspeakers on the drums and I have an amplified stick and I can just go inside. There's also the recording you hear, stuff like that, or amplifying a symbol and you touch the symbol and you make a feedback through the symbol. It's just, I feel it on my skin. For sure, I can do this all electronics, also digital. There are reasons right now also to think about to change my system to the digital world. But the thing is, first of all, I don't like to watch even more in a computer. I think the energy also on stage, if you have a computer on stage, it's a different. The screen is like a person or even worse, not a photographer or a filmmaker. It can be very irritating. And I do not like finding to see shows which people are watching in screens. It's take some kind of soul of the people. That's perhaps very esoteric shit, but, and the analog stuff, I can better repair than the digital. If I have a guitar effect and I see how oh, there's something rotten, I can open it and perhaps solder the contacts. If I have a problem with my computer and I'm on the road, you don't have a show. And you have to do it anyway, already all work on the computer. So uh, if I want to practice, I, I don't like to deal with the computer also. Yeah, even, even more the drum set. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit, this way, a little bit old school perhaps, but. <laughs> well, it's interesting because as an audience member, when I go to an evening of what I, I would, I'll call experimental music, does not confine to that, but when I go to any kind of, performance and i see for example an ambient musician with a bank of old synthesizers and mixers yeah. and doing their thing i find it very intriguing there's a wizardry to it when i go to a performance of that same music and i see someone with a laptop i find myself trying to figure out what's going on yeah. in a way that i'm not preoccupied with when i see analog instruments I don't necessarily have too much qualitative judgment, but I notice it. I notice it. And I don't know what's happening live versus what's being generated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I yeah. find that I care. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what we talked before. It's not black or white. I think there are so many, so great musicians. They do fantastic music with electronics, just digital. And it's also a, for sure incredible innovation right now with AI, what's going on and stuff like that. But even that, I realized perhaps I stay really analog because as a dinosaur in this AI world, why not? You know, you have to find your own language and it's very dangerous that as an artist or in general in the art world, you are not focused on the content, you are fo focused on the media. 
I don't like to go to a show to see new medias, a new VR camera, and you can do that, you know. Then it's like to go to the norm show. And then it's very fancy what you can do. And I like it. I say, oh, I want to have that also. But what is the message of the person who plays a show? What do you want to say? Are you happy if, or you're angry or you want to protest or you want a content to tell a story uh, and to feel that it's a dangerous thing with all this new media we have that we forget the psychologically inner motivation why you do it. The destruction of the technology is so heavy to our brain that it's very dangerous that we forgot ourselves somehow, what we won't express finally. I see that often if I teach uh, workshops for students, that they are much better than me. Musicians, whatever. But I feel in the end, if I see the, the work, it looks great. It's insane, but I feel an emptiness. I saw the video right now of Peter Brötzmann. He died some weeks ago and I was really impressed that he said that exactly also in, in an art school. Let's be yourself. There are so many better saxophone players than Peter Brötzmann, but Peter Brötzmann was a monolith of incredible, inspiring free jazz music. So I think my roots come from there somehow. Jimi Hendrix, uh, Nina Simone, all this, they are unique, absolutely unique. B.B. King, you hear in the first note, that's B.B. King. And this leads me to my school, also to myself, that I hope later some people here are that Simon. That will be finally my biggest compliment for myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, to bring it back to the Breath versus Beats project, I've long felt that way about Laswell. Like when I hear his bass sound um, <laughs> on a project, it's so recognizable. Yeah, exactly as a bass player, he's so minimalist, but it's so effective. effective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and the story is, it's, it's very kind. Uh, I was 16 and I listened to the material, Doral Bill. Yeah. And you cannot imagine how happy I was that uh, Bill uh, did this, that I was a teenager and was fan of this music. And now I'm here and that makes me happy. Yeah. It's incredible. He's a perhaps under-celebrated musical treasure, but his fingerprints are on so much important music yeah, in the last 40 yeah, years yeah. or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon, thank you so much. I'm very blessed to be on your show. Well, it's a, it's a joy to have you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Simon Burrs. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.